Well, today's message is just the second in our new series through the Acts of the Apostles. Um, if you missed last week's message, it will be easy to catch up. You can go to mylpcoli.com and click on the tab that's labeled Watch. All of our all of our sermons are there. And uh, the downside of all of that is that you have to look at me a lot. So, uh, but, but otherwise, uh, there's a great resource there. Let's pray together. Lord, as we come now to your word, we ask that you would help us to understand it, that you would help us to apply it, that you would help us to obey it, and uh, to obey you as you speak to us through it. Lord, uh, allow us in this time not just to hear the word, not just to read the word, hear about the word, but to hear you speaking into our lives. Um and uh, to know that it's you speaking through your word. And then, Lord, give us hearts to respond, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's clear, I hope, from the scripture that uh, Kathy just read, led, led us in reading together, that the central focus of today's scripture text uh, in Acts is the ascension of Jesus Christ into heaven following for following his resurrection and then those 40 days that intervened. So why should we give attention to this biblical doctrine of the ascension of Jesus Christ into heaven? In other words, why is the topic and the content of this biblical text so important for us? Uh, do you believe, uh, do you agree with me that the Bible is God's word? Do you believe with me that the whole of the Bible is God's Word? And so sometimes there are passages of Scripture that, that don't get a lot of attention, get a little short shrift. And I think this is one of them, and yet it's God's Word to us. And the Bible provides us with more reasons than we might possibly have time for. So allow me to suggest just three reasons why we should give attention to this biblical teaching uh, on the ascension of Jesus Christ into heaven. By the way, that word doctrine, uh, some people stumble over some of these words. It just means teaching. It just means what the Bible teaches on a particular topic. And uh, so here here are three reasons. First, it's important for us to give attention to the biblical doctrine of the ascension because uh, there is more to this doctrine than we may have understood. Um, Or perhaps ever will fully understand until in heaven we understand all of these things with clarity. Uh, It's not hard for me to imagine that in the minds of many believers, the ascension of Jesus into heaven amounted to nothing more than a scene from up. Um, You know, uh, Jesus and his disciples went from Jerusalem up to the Mount of Olives to the village near the village of Bethany. Jesus said a few words and then and then he rose from the ground and just kept going and going and going and until he was a you know, a speck, and then he vanished from their, from their view. That, that's the view of a lot of Christians. That's, that's kind of what happened. But the biblical concept of ascension is quite different from launching somewhat indiscriminately into the sky, like we saw Jeff Bezos and Captain Kirk do this past week. Uh, William Shatner finally had the opportunity to boldly go, but also very briefly, where many have now gone before, um, didn't didn't get to uh, you know shift into warp speed. Didn't get to uh, invoke the you know turn on the cloaking device, 
didn't get to shoot at any Klingons. He just went up and came back down. The whole thing lasted just under 11 minutes, to my understanding. But on the contrary, the biblical doctrine of ascension, the biblical concept of ascension, rather, is to ascend to a particular place for a particular purpose. To ascend to a particular place for a particular purpose. Jesus didn't merely go up. He went up, and then he sat down. In England and other countries like England that have a a monarchy, um, they will say that when someone uh, becomes a king or a queen, they ascend to the throne. They ascend to the throne. Jesus infinitely greater ascension was to the throne of heaven. And so to the right hand of God the Father for his coronation as King of kings and Lord of lords. This ascension to the throne of heaven was also for Jesus the answer to one of the requests that he had made of the Father in John 17 in what is been called Jesus' high priestly prayer, where he said, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So Jesus departed from glory, was incarnated in human flesh, lived, suffered, died, was buried, was raised to life, ascended back to glory. So that's exactly, in our text, what's about to happen. He declared to his disciples in Matthew chapter 28 and verse 18 that all authority in heaven and on earth had been given to him, and his first demonstration of that authority was to ascend into heaven. Pretty cool. And having ascended into heaven, Paul told the Ephesians that God seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. And in chapter 4, verse 10, he again said that he is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Would you say far above? Far above. Jesus Christ is the one who is far above anything that you can name or even begin to imagine. Back in Ephesians 1, Paul says that Jesus is the fullness of him who fills all in all. What does that mean? I don't have a clue. (laughs) But I have a feeling that if I did have a clue, my head would explode. At the wonder and the power of it all. 
Think of it with me. Jesus is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. What's a name that's named? It's, it's the popular people, right? The names that get named. The big names. He's far above all of those names. And that means that he's far above all political power. Does that comfort you at all? I mean... Do you worry about the wrong people in political power? Jesus is greater, far greater. He's far above all economic power. You ever get concerned about economic power in the hands of unscrupulous people? (laughs) I do. But Jesus is greater. He's far above all military power. You get anxious about wars and continuing international conflict, concerned about rogue military leaders and terrorists and tyrants. Jesus is greater. He's far above all intellectual power. Those who employ their mental capacities, for example, to counter and thwart, if it were possible, the purposes of God. He's greater. He's far above all the power of the media, far above all the powers of sickness and death. He's far above all spiritual powers and dominions. Neither Satan himself nor all of his legions of demons combined are equal to the supreme power and authority of the risen, glorified Lord Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. His ascension into heaven represented the culmination of his ministry on earth and the beginning of his ministry in heaven and from heaven. As Luke tells Theophilus in Acts chapter 1, verse 1, the previous volume he had written, which we know is the Gospel of Luke, had to do not with all that Jesus did and taught, as we saw last week, but rather with all that Jesus began to do and to teach. So let's fix it in our minds, church, that the events that are recorded in the Gospels were merely the beginning of his ministry, not the end. And that this second volume, the Acts of the Apostles, is therefore an orderly account of more of what Jesus continued to do and to teach by the Holy Spirit and through the church. And that when we come to the end of the book of Acts, that Jesus is continuing to do more and more and more, and he's continuing to do and to teach more and more today. Amen? The second reason why we should give attention to this text and to the doctrine of the ascension is that it was absolutely transformational in the lives of the disciples. William Shakespeare... can't even talk... William Shakespeare put those immortal words into the mouth of his character, Juliet, for her lover, Romeo, parting is such great sorrow. (laughs) It's important for us to recognize that the disciples' initial response to Jesus' announcement that he was going away was not sweet at all, but only sorrow. Only sorrow. They will put you out of the synagogues, he told them. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. 
And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Wasn't a good day in the lives of the disciples when Jesus announced that he was going away. Jesus added down in verse 20, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament. You will. But the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. Check out Luke 24, verses 52 to 53. They're the final verses of Luke's gospel, which overlap with the first verses of Acts. Having witnessed Jesus' ascension, it says, they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they were continually in the temple blessing God. Well, how do we account for the joy? What had changed? Well, there was the resurrection itself, which rocked their world just as it should rock ours. But they had previously been deeply sorrowful. And Jesus had now gone away from them again, yet again. But now in place of sadness and sorrow and confusion, they're filled with great joy. How do we account for that? Only, I think, that they had actually connected the dots to the degree that they could. They'd come to understand in a new and completely satisfying and empowering way where he was going, why he was going, what he would be doing, and that he would indeed be coming back. It's incredibly amazing, isn't it? Following his resurrection, Jesus had spent 40 days repeatedly providing them with incontrovertible evidence that he was indeed alive, that he had indeed been raised from the dead by the power of God, and then speaking to them about the kingdom of God, which is the rule of God, his power, his purposes, his agenda for both time and eternity and its meaning for their lives. And whatever was included in all of that, and we're not privy to everything that went on, but whatever was included in all of that connected with them in such a powerful and transforming manner that instead of continuing in grief and sorrow, their new experience was joy, gladness, hopefulness that issued forth in worship and praise. A third reason that we should gain a deeper understanding of the meaning and significance of Jesus' ascension into heaven is that God intends it to be transformational in our lives as well. Go back with me to Paul's letter to the Ephesians chapter 1. Because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to, listen now, 
according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above, there it is again, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. In other words, the focus of Paul's prayer for the believers in Ephesus and what he's conveying to them there is that the very same immeasurable power and the the might of God by which he raised the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places is available to us and at work in our lives to provide us with that same confidence, that same hopefulness, that same joy and power and fruitfulness that the apostles and the other disciples themselves experienced. And all of that is ours as well as the Spirit of God takes up residence in our lives and transforms us from the inside out. Well, I could go on, but let's get directly into into today's text. Acts chapter 1, verses 6 to 14. In that opening section, there is a question and answer uh, I was going to put the word eschatological in your notes, but that's uh, that's a big word. Uh, but it just means eschatology is the study of, of the end times, what the Bible says is going to happen uh, in in the end. And, uh, and so eschatology, eschatological is the the adjectival form of that verse or, or of that word. But question and answer here in verses Six to eight. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now he's about to ascend into heaven. It's just going to happen momentarily. And so they asked him that huge question. And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of of the earth. Now, you know, the apostles are often used as whipping posts by people like me. Uh, we, we, we want to ridicule them for their lack of understanding. And, and uh, you know, there's that duh factor. What, come on. You don't get it? Uh, but here we are, you know, 2,000 years later with fullness of revelation and lots of teaching and a lot more understanding that they had than they had in that moment. And this text is is one that seems to invite the most ridicule of all for this question at verse 6, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? But I've come in my life to believe that this question is neither silly nor unfounded at all. Uh, Notice that the one who asked the question is not named. It doesn't say Thomas asked or Philip asked or John asked or any of the disciples asked. So we can safely assume that this question was on all of their minds. These men were Jews. Uh, They had been brought up to believe that when Messiah came, he would be a political and military ruler who would break the power of Israel's oppressors. And and at this moment in history, uh, the power of Rome, that he would ascend the throne of his father, David, and rule over an everlasting kingdom from the city of Jerusalem. They were nurtured on scriptures like Isaiah 2, 
1 to 4, where we read these words, In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's house will be the highest of all, the most important place on earth. Well, where's that? That's Jerusalem. Uh, It will be raised above the other hills, Mount Zion, and people from all over the world will stream there to worship. People from many nations will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of Jacob's God. There he will teach us his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For the Lord's teaching will go out from Zion. His word will go out from Jerusalem. The Lord will mediate between nations and will settle international disputes. They will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will no longer fight against nation nor train for war anymore. Powerful prophecy. Was was Isaiah dreaming? Was he lying? Was he misrepresenting God? I don't think so. I I think, in fact, that this scripture points to the time of the millennial kingdom of Christ on earth, thousand-year reign, when he will come and, and reign on the earth. So Jesus didn't rebuke them for asking whether he was about to restore the kingdom to Israel. He simply pointed out that to know the times and seasons was was above their pay grade. It wasn't for them to know. It's not for... Not for us to know either, but the Holy Spirit was about to come upon them and they would receive his power to be his witnesses to all the people in all the places where he would send them. And that should be enough for them, and it was for that time. And then in verses 9 through 11, there's the, the matter of ascension and then promise. Ascension and promise. And when he had said these things... As they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw saw him go into heaven. Now, I'd like you to just think with me, because we don't do these things very often. We don't stop and kind of reflect on what we're reading. We don't do it enough. So think with me about what the disciples actually saw that day. We're told that they saw that he was lifted up. What they did not see is Jesus going higher and higher and higher until he was a bare speck in the sky and then disappear. We're told that he was lifted up, told two things, that he was lifted up and a cloud took them out of their sight, took him out of their sight. We're not told how high he was lifted up. You ever think about that? It was apparently high enough that it left them gazing upward but it might not have been very high at all. might have been 10 feet. That's a basketball hoop. might have been 20. might have been 100. might have been 1,000. Told that he was lifted up. A cloud took him out of their sight. So this raises an interesting question, again, that we don't think about very often. 
which is the question, where is heaven? Where is heaven? When I was a little boy, a Russian cosmonaut was rocketed into space. And when he came back down, he said, I didn't see God anywhere. (laughs) I don't know if he expected to see God. I think today he's has seen God. Where is heaven? Is it far above the earth's atmosphere in a place far above the universe itself in a galaxy far, far away? Or is heaven very close to us? Just behind a, a veil in, in another dimension. We don't know. British author C.S. Lewis once speculated that Jesus may have been withdrawn, as it were, through a fold in space. Cool thought. Like an actor, he said, having taken his bow, appears to vanish into a fold in the stage curtain, when, in fact, he had merely slipped into a gap between two curtains. So the answer is that we, we really can't say where heaven is. What we can say with confidence is who is there. Jesus is there. God the Father is there. And make note of the promise given by these angels, these these men in white robes, men of Galilee. Why do you stand looking into heaven? You just picture that, can't you? I mean, just all of them standing there with their mouths hanging wide open, looking up. This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. In the same way. In what way? Personally? Bodily? Visibly? In a cloud? And attended by angels? So the ascension of Jesus, I might just submit to you, becomes the inverse prototype for the rapture and the second coming of Christ. At the rapture, the Bible says that the church, both living and dead, all of us, will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And later at his second coming, the Bible tells us that the King of kings and Lord of lords will come on the clouds of heaven in great power and glory and will set his foot down on the Mount of Olives from which he ascended. Gives me goosebumps thinking about that. And on that occasion, every eye will see it happen. I used to look at that and think, hmm, (laughs) how's that possible, you know? But today, I would say, you know, every network will cover it. Well, maybe, maybe some of them will ignore it, try to pretend it didn't happen. They won't be able to deny it for long. But he's coming And he's coming on the clouds with his holy angels. Kings and kingdoms, we sing, will bow down. In Acts 1, 12 to 14, the two words there are worship and return. Worship and return. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. Let me pause right there. Any of you know how, how long a Sabbath day's journey is? Hmm? Limited steps, yeah. In the Mishnah, which is a part of the 
the book uh, of rabbinical teachings called the Talmud. The Mishnah um, deals with rabbinical law. Uh, it says that um, on the Sabbath day, and by the way, there's nothing biblical about this. This is just rabbinical, the teaching of the rabbis. A Sabbath day's journey was two-thirds of a mile, which happens to be exactly the distance from Jerusalem to the village of Bethany on the top of the Mount of Olives. Sabbath day's journey. Rabbis were always building fences between the people and the actual word of God to keep them from violating it. But there it is. Where was I? Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. And here's a list of those who were there. This is is great. Peter and John, James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James, not Judas Iscariot, but another Judas. All these with one accord. That's not a Honda sedan. It's, It's a mindset. All of these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus. Isn't that awesome? And his brothers. Remember that, do you remember that, that Mary and Jesus' brothers weren't quite sure about him? Actually thought he might have lost his mind, came at one time to take him home, <laughs> put him in a straight jacket, throw him on a donkey. But there they are. Go back with me now for just a moment to Luke's account on the ascension of the ascension in chapter 24 of his gospel. Luke 24, 50 to 53, he led them out as far as Bethany and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. You know, if you look back to certain departures, and we'll remember saying goodbye to Freddie and Robin. You think back in your mind uh, to to the mental snapshots you have of departures, of, of farewells. Picture what the disciples would remember. Because as Jesus is rising into heaven, he has his hands lifted in blessing. He was He was blessing them as he ascended into heaven. What what a great memory that must have been for them. He wasn't angry. He wasn't tired. He wasn't anything other than their Lord and their Savior blessing them as he ascended into heaven. I think that's remarkable. Notice that at some point the disciples stopped gazing into heaven and their wide-eyed wonder transformed into joyful worship. And that worship extended beyond their short journey back to Jerusalem to daily worship in the temple. And in Acts 1 verse 14, Luke tells us that they all there with one accord and with one purpose, with one mind, with unity of heart, devoted themselves to prayer. And so we've seen the the primary focus of Jesus' ministry during the 40 days between his resurrection and his ascension. And here we understand what the focus of the disciples was between the ascension and the day of Pentecost, which was worship and prayer. They devoted themselves to prayer. They were filled with joy. 
You know, St. Augustine put the necessity of the ascension in simple terms when he wrote that unless the Savior had ascended into heaven, his nativity would have come to nothing, his passion would have borne no fruit in us, and his most holy resurrection would have been useless. So what's he saying? He's saying that the ascension is the thing that makes sense of it all. As I've said before, you, you, you probably can't go to Hallmark and buy an Ascension Day card. I mean, who's, who celebrates the Ascension? And yet it's the, it's the thing that makes sense of it all. So what Augustine was saying is that Christmas and Easter make really no sense unless there's an Ascension into heaven. Allow me to suggest four key words that that may help us to dial in and understand the significance of Christ's ascension into heaven. These these just frame the subject. The first one is validation. Validation. The promise of the angels that as the disciples had uh, had seen Jesus ascend into heaven in a cloud, that he would come back in the same manner, validated Jesus' claim to be the one like a son of man whom the prophet Daniel had seen in his vision that's recorded in Daniel chapter 7. You remember that son of man was was the label that Jesus applied to himself the most, right? And and where that comes from is, is Daniel 7. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the cloud, notice this, the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, And he came to the ancient of days, that is, God, and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. In fact, you might recall that this very claim was the one that that gave the Jewish Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, the confession that they needed in order to sentence Jesus finally to death. When he stood trial before them, Caiaphas, the high priest, asked him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, you have said so. You said it, brother. But I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? And they answered, He deserves death. The ascension validated. Jesus claimed to be this one like a son of man who would have universal authority and reign eternally. The second word is vindication. Validation and then vindication. The ascension of Jesus to God's right hand is God the Father's demonstration that he both accepted and approved the accomplishment of his son. The Father received the Son back with joy because Jesus had accomplished perfectly all of the commands of His Father. 
And this is precisely what Peter told the crowd in Jerusalem after the event of the Holy Spirit being poured out on the day of Pentecost. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Third word is completion. Completion. In that final moment on the cross, before Jesus gave up his spirit, he cried out, It is finished. It is finished. And as we saw last week, what Jesus declared in that moment is that everything that was necessary for our salvation, everything that was necessary for your sins to be forgiven, for your reconciliation with God, for you to receive the gift of eternal life, was completed completely. It was completed completely. In the opening section of the New Testament book of Hebrews, the writer spans the redemptive career of Christ in just three verses long ago. At many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Well, where does this language of sitting down come from and why is it significant? Go with me to chapter 10 of Hebrews. This is one of my, this is one of my top 10 in scripture. I, I, I just, I never stop being amazed at what I read here. He presents, the writer presents Jesus as the high priest who offers the atoning sacrifice for the sins of the people on the altar. But not only is he the high priest offering the sacrifice, but he himself is the sacrifice. Every priest stands daily, stands. Hear that? Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Imagine that. I remember reading somewhere that that uh, on, the, on days like Passover and other high priests were sacrifices or high holidays, feasts and festivals, when when sacrifices were being made, that the blood would flow in the streets of Jerusalem, down from the temple, would flow. And yet the writer of Hebrews says none of that ever was effective to take away sins, to remove them. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. He sat down 
at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Psalm 110, verse 1. For by a single offering, by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. No additional sacrifice needed, nothing to add, work completed, no more work to be done. Jesus, our high priest, sat down. And once again, I'm preaching better than you're saying amen. Next word is exaltation. Exaltation. When the risen, ascended, and victorious Christ sat down at the right hand of God, it also meant his exaltation, his ascension to the throne of heaven. We might think of it in terms of downward and upward mobility, his incarnation and and earthly ministry right down to his death and burial, downward mobility. But from the resurrection to the ascension, to his enthronement at the right hand of God, all upward mobility. It's all upward. And Paul portrayed this vividly in Philippians 2 where he wrote, Christ Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God also highly exalted him and gave to him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. See, all authority in heaven and earth is His. All worship and praise in heaven and on earth belong to Him as well. So what's He doing now? What's He doing now? What is the present ministry of Jesus? Three things. First of all, He's proclaiming His grace. He's proclaiming His grace. We observed last week that that He's doing that by the Spirit and through the church. Before Jesus went to the cross, he said to his disciples, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. And because of the gift of the Holy Spirit, the proclamation of the message and salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, literally explodes. Why? Why was that? Because in the person of the Holy Spirit, the presence of Christ is universalized in the hearts and lives of every single believer in Jesus so that he's with us everywhere we go. His power is available for every conversation, every circumstance, every opportunity to share the gospel. And we're going to see that in a big way next week. He's proclaiming his Grace. You see, if Jesus hadn't gone away, the Holy Spirit would not be alive in you today. Jesus in the flesh couldn't be everywhere. But the Holy Spirit in you can. He's proclaiming His grace. Second, He's preparing your place. As Jesus prepared his disciples in the upper room for what was about to happen in the hours and days ahead of them, Jesus said, Let not your hearts be troubled. 
Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. See, there are many rooms. There are many residences. There are many dwelling places. What would you like? A condo? An apartment? Log cabin? What would you like? There are many of them in the Father's house. And if you have trusted in Christ for your eternal salvation, there's a place being prepared for you. Jesus added something we can't afford to miss or ignore in the next few verses. And you know the way to where I'm going. (laughs) Thomas said to him, Lord, we, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way. And the truth and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. Only by personal faith in Jesus Christ, who is the way. Do do any of us have any claim on heaven or hope for heaven? See, if you're not trusting in Christ today, you, you may discover much too late when the window of opportunity has finally closed for you that, that you didn't have a reservation after all. That your name is not written down in the Lamb's book of life. The Bible says it's appointed unto man once to die. And after that, not reincarnation, but judgment. Judgment. The question is, are you ready? He's proclaiming his grace and preparing our place, and finally he's pleading your case. He's pleading your case. Here's some more very good news from the Apostle John. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, not only for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. By this we know that we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. See, John is is in effect saying... I hope you don't sin, but I know you will. In fact, I know that, John probably would say, I know that for 100% certain. And here are two points of encouragement. When you sin, Jesus is your advocate with the Father. He is your defense attorney. And second, Jesus is the propitiation, the sacrifice that sets us right with God for our sins. So when you sin, it's as if Jesus says, Father, I died for that sin. I bore that sin to the cross. She's one of mine. Father, that sin he just committed, I died for that sin. He's one of mine. And when you do it again, he says it again, and again, and again, and again, and again, because we're slow learners. And that's why the writer of Hebrews also tells us that he is able, he is able once and forever to save those who come to God through him. He lives forever to intercede with God on their behalf. He's proclaiming His grace. He's preparing your place. And He's pleading your case. 
So what are we supposed to do with this? How, how, how are we to apply all of this? It's so important for us to know. It's also important for us to live on. First of all, he wants you to be his witness. So think about this. There's lots of people in your sphere of influence that don't know the Lord. There are people in your family. There are people maybe in your own home that don't know Jesus. Maybe you can't reach them all. Maybe as you think about all of them, you feel overwhelmed. So just think about this. Who's one person? Who's one person in your life that needs you to share Jesus with them? And begin praying for opportunities to share the gospel. Little windows that open in conversation and and for the power of the Spirit to be at work in their life and in your life so that when those opportunities come, you can capitalize on them and you see them when they come. And then expect him to answer that prayer. Secondly, I I think we could say from this passage that God wants you to be his worshiper. He wants you to be his worshiper. Someone once said that this generation of Americans will be remembered as those who worshipped their work, worked at their play, and played at their worship. Worshipped their work, worked at their play, and played at their worship. Just dabbling. Just dinking around with it treating it casually. So are you really a worshiper of the resurrected and ascended Christ, or are you more accurately described as one who merely plays at his or her worship? Is it a priority with you? Do you come with energy when you come to worship? Do you come expectantly? You can hardly wait. Get here early. And third, I think he wants us to wait. Be his witness, be worshipers. He wants us to wait confidently and patiently for his coming. I think it's soon. He's coming again for his church. So are you living with that expectant anticipation of his arrival? Do the values by which you are living today actually reflect that you really believe that he's going to keep his promise? Because here's what I know. He could break through the clouds at any moment. And in that moment, in the twinkling of an eye, Paul said, the church will be gone. 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 Will you be gone with the church? Are you ready? Are you trusting in Jesus Christ, the risen ascended, glorified King of kings and Lord of lords as your Savior? Do you know that your sins are forgiven, that you have eternal life, that your name is written down in the Lamb's book of life? If not, we'd we'd love to talk with you about that and help you understand how you can know for sure that you are going to heaven either when he comes or or when you die, (laughs) whichever comes first. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for uh, this amazing, mind-bending, mind-exploding passage of Scripture. And Lord, teach us to be witnesses. Teach us to be worshipers. And Lord, help us not to give up hope. Help us to wait 
faithfully, expectantly invested in the priorities of your kingdom. And we pray it in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior and our soon coming King. Amen.